Hello, listeners. I'm Brenda Lone Baker, leadership coach and speaker. Welcome to Fearless Females, Redefining Success in Women's Leadership. I'm passionate about helping women be more than they ever dreamed they could. This podcast records conversations with highly successful women in all kinds of careers. They share their learning and their experiences to help you create a roadmap to your leadership success. I am thrilled today to share this interview with you. I am interviewing Anjale Scott Prince. She is the Chief Operating Officer at Mizar Imaging, and I think you are really going to enjoy listening to all of the things that she shares. It's a great conversation. Okay. Well, hello. Thank you for being here. I want everyone to meet Angela Scott Price. I'm so excited to interview you today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Um, so why don't we start out with you telling me what it is that you do? So I'm currently the Chief Operating Officer at Mizar Imaging, small microscope company in Woods Hole. And I'm also the co-director of the Woods Hole Partnership Education Program, which is an internship for underrepresented students to come to Woods Hole for the summer. That is great. I actually was a member of the church that usually housed all those kids in the big room. So, oh, yeah. And, um, the Church of the Messiah. Church of the Messiah. Yeah, we actually held some talent shows there a couple years. The students put them together themselves and it was a really, really fun community event. Yeah, I heard great things about it from uh, the members of the church who are there and present. And I always wanted to volunteer, but then it just never worked out. Yeah, um, it happens. And then our students last year were virtual and this year they'll be virtual again. So hopefully next year we can get back to doing some in-person fun things. Yes, boots and, and in the water kind of stuff. Yes, that's awesome. exactly. Um, that's neat. So uh, I know that you have a, a bit of an interesting story as to how you came to be in Falmouth and doing what you're doing. So why don't you share that with us? Sure. So I'm originally from Southern California, uh, Riverside, California. It's uh, just outside of Los Angeles. And actually growing up, I switched schools a lot. Every year from second grade to 10th grade, I went to a different school. Um, I skipped the fourth grade, but so second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, every year was a different school. So I, from a very young age, was accustomed to constantly meeting new people, constantly talking to people, making new friends, uh, switching things up basically. And um, a week after I turned 17, I moved to Florida to attend Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Oh, and cool. I started off in aerospace engineering because I wanted to be a rocket scientist. And then after two years, I decided I didn't want to be a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so I switched to civil engineering and that's what I ended up finishing my degree in. Uh, but before finishing, I actually came to Woods Hole for my first summer. I was invited by Dr. Ambrose Gerald Jr who was the co-founder of the PEP internship that I now co-direct. And so I came up here for the first summer and it was very reluctant. I was like, ah, I came from California to Florida because I like to be warm. 
Massachusetts sounds cold. I've never been there. And I, you know, flew into Boston, took the Peter Pan bus and stepped off the bus in Falmouth on a very Cape Cod day. It was gloomy. <laughs> it was very just like misty, which in oh, Florida yeah. we have humidity, but the mist here was different. But mm -hmm. I knew as soon as I got off the bus, I was, oh, this, this is my place. Like I just felt it like this is where I'm supposed to be. So I worked that summer and then I did a sea semester. So I came back for the fall and did a sea semester. And then I volunteered on some boats and I just did random stuff every year. And then I would quit my job every year in May so I could come back for the summer. So like I worked at T-Mobile for a couple months and then I came back and then I like went and took classes at a community college and I came back and I volunteered on a NOAA ship and I came back. Like Whatever I was doing, I would quit so I could come back because I just, I loved it here so much. And then at some point life caught up with me and I had to, you know, find a year round job. And so <laughs> um, I was only coming up here uh, more for fun than for work for a couple years until I was offered the job working at Mizar Imaging, which is what I do now. So in 2018, I was offered that position and we moved up here in 2018. And then spring of 2019, we bought our house and this is where we'll plan to be for the foreseeable future. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Falmouth has that effect on you. It's kind of that place that anyone who lives anywhere else is like, whoa, that's so far away. Yeah. And, but once you're there, it's really lovely. It's absolutely lovely. And it's like the opposite happens now is if I think of anything off Cape, I'm like, oh, I have to go over the bridge for something. Oh, that's so far. That's terrible. Um, that means you, you've really, you've really become a Falmouth resident. <laughs> if you're, if yeah. you're thinking about the bridge as so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the summer, I definitely try not to leave the Cape, but even, you know, recently I haven't really gone anywhere, obviously because of the pandemic, but right. before then it was still like, are you sure we can't get what we need? on this side of the bridge, maybe we don't need it. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so you really, you really, I love what you said about how you found anything you could. And I think that's an important point to go back to because women always ask me, you know, how do I get there? How do I make things happen? You know, I don't have the experience or I don't have that in my resume. And it sounds like you just did whatever you could. And, you know, by the time you were looking for that full-time job, your resume must've been very full. So what made you have that? I guess there's two things like the confidence to be able to apply for those things. Mm -hmm. And then um, kind of the, the calm to be able to say, it'll all work out right? Because I talk to so many women that are like, oh, I need the plan. And it's got to be this, that and the other. And then when they have no plan anymore, they're kind of like, ah, what's <laughs> next? Oh my gosh, I don't know what's next. Yeah. You know, I don't have the next five years written out. So yeah. how, how did that work for you? So interestingly, I, I was very much a plan person. I was very, I mean, I'm an engineer, like that is, right. that is who I am. It's plans and standard operating procedures and things have to be in line to get done. And so I did have a plan. And my plan was to go to school and become a rocket scientist and to be in the Navy. I was also an ROTC for a year. And then they offered me a scholarship at the end of my freshman year. And I really had to sit and think like, is that, is that really what I want to do with my life? Like I, I believe in service, but I realized that that's, that was not for me. And so between that and realizing that rocket science was not my thing, 
all of my plans just gone. And I really had to start thinking about what do I really want to do and where do I really want to be? And I really do think that growing up having switched schools every year helped build some of that confidence because I had to meet new people. I had to basically prove every year like, hey, I'm a good person. You want to be friends with me. I had to do that every year. I only have one friend that I'm still in touch with from my high school years and, and nobody before that. All of my other friends come from college and beyond. And but it, that connection is is really important because it helps keep me grounded and remembering like where I came from, but also reminds me that I bounced around so much, but I've still made it. Like mm -hmm. I'm still fine where I am. So kind of in context, thinking about that, as I'm looking to my future, like, okay, where am I gonna go? I, my plan has not worked out. Well, switching schools every year was never my plan. That was, right. I didn't choose to do that, but it all worked out and I, and I learned and I grew from that. So when I first came to Falmouth and I said, this is, I just knew this is where I needed to be. This is where I was supposed to be. And this is where I wanna be. So how do I make sure that I can come back? And I just kept that as my focus. And of course there were struggles along the way of figuring out like, can I actually afford to quit my job and come back here for the summer? And when I left at the end of the summer, what am I actually gonna do? So it was just the confidence of, I know where I'm supposed to be and I know that I will get there. And, and part of it is also my faith. I, I have a strong belief in God and that he provides for me. And so as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and help asking him for his help, that I'm going to be fine. And it's, it's always worked out, not without many struggles and long nights and crying, uh, but it, it has always worked out. I love that you bring up faith. I think that's part of one of the challenges that the younger generation faces is that, you know, they haven't been taught that faith, that steadiness. And so it's hard for them to have that to go back to. And it doesn't have to be in a church right. or wherever it can be, you know, taking a walk in the woods or meditation or just quieting yourself. It can be anything that builds up that belief that everything's going to be okay. Absolutely. Um, were you ever nervous when you were going to meet new people? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I... So as a, a woman of color, there yes. are often stereotypes that come with the way that I look. And that was usually the thing that I was most concerned about was that people are going to look at me and automatically have all of these assumptions. And I, in the, the whatever time I have with them, have to not only talk to them about whatever it is I want to talk to them about, but also break down all these stereotypes along the way. And then also knowing that my interaction with them may make them think differently about women of color, specifically black women in the future. So knowing that not only am I going in to represent myself, I'm going in to represent anybody who might come after me. And it was, I think a, a lot of the misconceptions and stereotypes are from people who don't know women of color. They don't know black women. They only know what they see on TV, which unfortunately is not generally the best of us um, mm -hmm. or the worst of the stereotypes. You know, so they only know what they know until they learn something else. And if I can be that person to bridge that gap, I want to do that. But it also comes with, you know, a lot of responsibility that that's what I'm doing. So meeting new people and, and reaching out definitely has some, some weight to it. It's not just me. 
that's going in into these conversations. But it's a responsibility that I I take on and that I'm usually happy to do. Not sometimes, uh, you know, a little apprehensive, but I'm usually usually happy to take it on. So how do you psych yourself up for that? I just remind myself that I'm awesome. Like it, and that's one thing about women. We're often taught not to have that much confidence. We're taught to be meek and be humble and, you know, to serve others, which I do believe in service, but not in this way, but serve others and make sure other people are comfortable and, you know, stay behind the scenes. No, I, I'm good at what I do. I am very good at organizing. I am good at running this business. I am good at working with my students and people with PEP. I'm, I'm good at it. And I'm going to let you know that I'm good at it. And if, if that frightens you, if you're like, Oh, too, a, too confident, too aggressive. Well, I don't, I'm sorry. I, I know what I'm good at and I'm not going to hide that. And there are definitely times where I've had to remind myself of that because I have had people come to me and maybe not openly say, well, you know, maybe you're not that good or belittle me or something. And so, you know, those microaggressions and those thousand cuts, like those, they do affect me sometimes. But when I take a step back and think about what I've done, the people that I've worked with, when I look at the students that I've worked with and the amazing things that they're doing and they're telling me, I couldn't have gotten here without your support or without your connections, without your love, that that reminds me like, yes, I, I'm here, I'm doing the right thing. I'm good at what I do. And anybody who doesn't believe me can just watch. I love that. And, and I, I try to teach my clients that and I teach that in my leadership program. And I probably have said it on the podcast before, but it's so important. Women are taught to look at the things they haven't done. Yes. What didn't I do? What wasn't good enough? Yes. And I actually instruct clients to keep a journal of all of the things that they do. Yes. Not the things that they haven't done, but the things that they do, even if they're just little things like I answered 10 emails today. That's great. You know, whatever yeah. it is that you've gotten done so that you're looking at the accomplishments and the positive instead of constantly that the knots. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's, it, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. It really is a process that needs to be practiced, like lifting weights or running or anything like that, you get better at it the more that you do it. Exactly, it's a mindset shift because we have been, for lack of a better term, indoctrinated to believe that we need to focus on what we haven't done and what we could do better. And of course, there's definitely times for reflection of, sure, maybe I could have done that better or you know, next time I can do this, absolutely. But that should not be the focus, like you said. We should right. focus on what we have done, what we are doing, how we feel about what we're doing, because sometimes we're working on something and we're not seeing the fruits of our labor immediately, but it feels good to know that we're working on something. You know, if you're gardening, it feels good to garden, to plant the seeds and mm -hmm. to water and start yeah, to see sprouts. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, it's gonna be a while before you have a tomato that you can eat, but that yeah. doesn't mean that the work that you put in along the way was not worth it. It doesn't mean that you didn't also feel good about that work because some things, you know, Take, it takes a while before you can reap what you sow. Right. And it is my belief that that is one of the things that if, if you're constantly looking and, you know, a lot of really intelligent women are somewhat type A and they're really good at looking at what they didn't do or what wasn't good enough. And that really feeds a lack of confidence. Yes. Because you're always 
putting yourself down. Right. And really to build your confidence up, you need to be looking at what you did do and what was good. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. So there are times you have to look back and say, okay, I've finished that now. Let me look back and think, what did I do great? What did I, what could I have done better? What's my opportunities for learning in the future? What's the next steps? You know, Absolutely. what do I want to bring with me into the next challenge? Absolutely. And it also really helps to have people around you who support you and will, and will do that as well. When I came to work at Mizar, I was at a job where I felt uh, a little berated. I felt a little underappreciated. And I had, what I didn't realize was I had lost a little bit of that confidence. And so when Joel called me and was like, hey, I want you to come work for my business. I was like, I, you know, I mean, I want to, but I'm not sure, you know, that that's something that I could do or, you know, you sure you want me? And he's like, I know you and I know that you can do this. And yes, I want you here. And so obviously I came and, and things are going really well. And it was helpful to have him remind me of who I was because I was in a place temporarily, thankfully, where I had almost forgotten a bit about myself and, and lost some of that confidence. And so I think it's really important to also have those allies, those supporters around you who will remind you when you have your bad days or your bad moments, where you're looking at what you could have done better instead of focusing on what you did well. It's, it's really encouraging and definitely helped me in some of my, my dark times um, to, have, to have him. What's great about that is Joel is not a woman. Joel is not a woman. And, and so um, I think a lot of times women look for mentors or people to learn from that are women because it has to be a woman. And really, it doesn't have to be a woman. Right. It can be anyone. And, and there are lots of men out there like Joel. Joel is exceptional and definitely believes in intelligent women or he wouldn't be still married probably. Um, <laughs> but um, I think we can look for mentors that, that aren't women to learn from and to support us as well. Yeah, interestingly, I was at an event several years ago now and they asked us as part of a work, uh, this exercise to write down our top four mentors. And I realized making my list. Well, I shouldn't say I realized I made my list and then they were asking questions about think about who's on your list. What do they look like? What is their gender? And I realized, oh, all of my top four are men. Mm -hmm. Like all the, all the people in my life who have been the most not supportive is not the right word for my impactful. career. Impactful. Yes. Thank you. That's a good word. Most impactful for, for my career. Uh, we're all men and they they're all still on the top of my list they're all incredibly supportive and of course there are some things that they're not going to completely understand they're not going to completely understand this intersectionality of being black and being a woman but a couple of them are black so they definitely understand that aspect of it and it doesn't mean that i don't also have women that i look to it was just that in the fields that i'm in they are very male dominated and so if you're looking to the people who have the most experience and can really navigate you in certain ways, they are men. And that's, that's how my list came up. And, and I love them dearly and I wouldn't be here without them. I'm, I'm curious about that because you said you come from an engineering background. Mm -hmm. How many women were there in your classes of learning? So to preface that, 
Yeah, to preface that so it doesn't sound as shocking, the ratio of men to women when I attended Embry-Riddle was eight to one. So for every one woman, there were eight men. Mm -hmm. And so I was very often the only woman in my class and almost always the only person of color. Mm -hmm. I vividly remember one of my engineering classes, there was another uh, black man. He was from the islands, from the Caribbean. And we bonded immediately because we're like, we, we got to stick together, man. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was almost always the only one. They now boast that the ratio of men to women is now seven to one. Like, congratulations. That's not. <laughs> it's still low. That's it's still, still it's still low. very low. Yeah. So I have been in male dominated, specifically white male dominated spaces for a very, very long time. And it is that that in itself has taught me a lot about navigating life and navigating the world. And maybe that's partially why I've, I've gravitated towards some of these male mentors is because I understand that they, in most cases, still hold a lot of the power. And so if I want to get in on that, if I want to, as they say, know the right lines to stand in and know the right words to speak, I've got to talk to the people who are already in. Is there um, anything that you would say that a mentor certainly has really, I mean, you said there's some that have really impacted your um, whole career. Can you give us like one example of how that worked for you with a mentor? Sure. So Dr. Ambrose Gerald Jr., who he's basically like family now. So I met him when I was in an undergraduate program back in 2000 five or six, it was either my freshman or sophomore year. That, that far goes starts to get hazy. So somewhere in there, he was my mentor in another program that I was in for underrepresented students in STEM. Mm -hmm. And we you know, loosely kept in touch, but enough that he knew that I would be someone who would be good enough to, to, come, to come run the PEP internship for the summer. This PEP was started in 2009. And then in 2010, they were like, we need a coordinator. So they hired uh, actually a friend of mine named uh, Janiqua Howard. And when she had to leave, she talked to Dr. Gerald and said, you know, I think Angie would be really good for this position. So Dr. Gerald agreed. And so he called me and that's really what started my whole career in being able to come up here. So it was his confidence in me that reminded me to have confidence in myself to come up here and, and start this job. I had never been up here before. I had minimal experience coordinating anything. And he's like, yeah, you'll be fine here and literally just figured it out the first summer. And then every year it just got better. And now, you know, it's like a well-oiled machine. Right. So having him initially say, I see something in you, you have kind of the experience, maybe not quite all of it, but I know that you can do it. And him, I don't know really if he invited me back every year or I just said, I'm coming back every year, but you know, <laughs> having me come back every year and continue doing that. And Last year I was the acting director while the director was out on medical leave. And this year I'm the co-director. So I'll be managing the day-to-day -day for the, the students this summer. And it's just, you know, I started off with maybe I can do this to now I'm like, oh yeah, I can definitely do this. I'm, I'm directing the program. That's great. I love that, that you said you kind of had the experience because so many women, men too, but uh, women specifically look at something and, and they say, oh, well, I don't have all of that. Right, because we are taught if you can't check every box, then you can't apply. That could not be further from the truth. And I think one thing that we don't often realize is that 
what we do in some of our experience can be translated to different experiences. Mm -hmm. So no, I had never managed a program of undergraduate students. I had never run anything that big, but I had worked with Girl Scouts. I had worked with an outreach program at my university for girls. So yeah, I had worked with students, definitely different type of students. I mean, mm -hmm. third graders and undergraduates, you know, different level, but still students. I still had to make sure that things were organized for our events. So it was translating the same type of skills and leadership, but just on a different level. And so often I think we are intimidated by that because we think, well, we don't want to mess up. Because again, if, you know, if we mess up, like, oh man, it's not just me, it's being reflected. It's like other women, it's other people of color. Uh, but I think having confidence in ourselves that, yes, I can do this. And if I make a mistake, I'm going to learn from it and move on. I'm not doing, I'm personally not doing brain surgery. So I know that whatever mistakes I make are not going to be life or death. Right. They're not going to be, you know, they're going to be, you know, fairly minimal in the grand scheme of life. But I, I think that reminding ourselves that we can do it mm -hmm. is, is the first step. That's the most important part. I love that. And I think, you know, talking about failure and that's, that's really how you learn. I, I work with some businesses and if they're not willing to fail, mm -hmm. they're probably going to fail. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> right? You know, and, and we've even taught our, our kids that fail means first attempt in learning. Yes. I love that. Right. Because it's, that's how you learn. That's how you move forward and, and experience things. And that's an opportunity for growth. Absolutely. Every failure is an opportunity. Uh, so I love that you brought that up because I think there are a lot of, again, really intelligent women that are a little bit type A and they really want everything to go exactly as they planned. And the sooner they can adjust that a little, not lose their oomph to, you know, do well and push forward, but to be okay when it doesn't go exactly as planned and and roll with it and use it to their benefit somehow you know find the opportunity in it absolutely the, yes. the sooner they'll be successful absolutely yeah when things don't go according to plan that's just means he's got to have a different plan and that's that's okay it's it's easy i will admit it is easier said than done especially for someone like me in engineer me like Okay, I guess I got to start with a new plan, but but sometimes that can also be fun. It gives you a second to, to step back and say, okay, that didn't work. So, what would I rather be doing anyway, or how would I rather see this happen since that plan failed anyway? Right, I love that. I'm a planner. Also, I come from an engineering family, and the only reason I'm not an engineer is because I'm the fourth child, and after three others went to engineering school, I was like, nope. I'm doing something different. I'm not going to be compared to them. Uh, so I, I went into business school, but uh, I definitely probably could have been a really great engineering manager because I can speak both languages. So I'm, a, I'm like a Sherpa. I can translate. Yeah. So uh, that would have been good for me, but I'm doing, doing fine. I'm working with a lot of women that are in STEM now. So I'm using that part of my brain. Yeah, um, I know you you talked about stereotyping a little and I'd, I'd love to kind of touch on that. How has stereotyping affected you? That might be one of the biggest contributors to my, I will say temporary lack of confidence that I've had along the way. When I was at Ember Riddle, 
I was part of EcoCar, which uh, very simply, Department of Energy sponsored this where several different universities were giving, given a Saturn, the, the car, Saturn SUV. And the goal was to convert it from a regular engine to a diesel engine or to a um, you know, vegetable oil based engine. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was on that and we were going to a competition in Arizona. And originally myself and my friend who was another black female were the only two people from the group who were not going on this trip. So when I, I was working at the women's center on campus and I mentioned it to the director of the women's center and she said, well, how are they not gonna bring the only two women and the only two people of color on this trip but bring everybody else? And I was like, yeah, I don't really wanna push it, but you know, whatever. So she pushed it and we ended up going on this trip and we're at the airport waiting to board our flight. And one of the guys from my group does not know I'm standing behind him. And he's talking to, yeah, he's talking to somebody from another school. He's like, yeah, yeah, everything was all good, but they made us bring these two black bees with us. And the kid who is, he's talking to is seeing me. And so the kid who's from my group turns around and realizes that I'm standing there. And obviously he's talking about me and my one friend and I didn't even I didn't even have a response I had I had nothing to say and it just ruined the whole trip it was like I don't want to work with you because now I know what you really think of me you think that I'm useless and even though I've been part of this group for a while and I've worked on things in the lab like you obviously have seen no contribution you just dwindled me down to a black bee and that, that whole trip, I had to remind myself that I am part of this team, that I am valuable. And it was just, it was devastating. So we came, we came back to campus and I didn't participate anymore. That's it, that I was, I was done. I also had a professor tell me that people like me don't do well in his class. And when I asked him what that meant, he's like, well, black people. And he just said it so matter of fact that it was, it was mind blowing that, that he felt that it was so true that he felt like it was okay to say it to my face because it was just like a known fact. You know, and there are tons of other just smaller examples of that happening over time. And me really questioning like, am, am I supposed to be here? Because everyone else seems to think that I'm not supposed to be here. So those were some, those were some real, real tough days for me to get through in college. Um, I'm sure that's, uh, I'm curious, how did you do in his class? I had to take it twice. You did? I it did was one of those really tough classes. <laughs> it was, it was uh, aircraft structures class, but I know that part of why I had to take it twice was because after he made that, I went to his office because I needed help because I, I was struggling. It is, it's a aircraft structures and design. It was a difficult class. Right. And so hearing that and then feeling like I couldn't go back to him for help. And I, what, there was nobody else that I could really go to for help. And so, yeah, I failed the class the first time and I had to retake it. And that was also really frustrating because I, I almost fed into, you know, what he said was, well, you're not going to do well in my class. Like, well, maybe I would have, if you would have helped me instead of telling me that I wasn't going to do well. Mm -hmm. um, whew, yeah, that was, that was rough. It is, and it's it's so hard because you have to have such inner strength to be able to move past that. You know, that's something that 
could easily shift you and deter you. And it almost did. So one thing that I don't talk about quite often is, and I want to talk about it now because it is part of failure that we're talking about, is when I walked across the stage in 2010, when I graduated, I was not finished with my degree. Mm -hmm. I still needed to take that class and another class. And I, so I wasn't done with my degree. Everybody thought I was done. Oh, congrats, Angie, you graduated and stuff. I even came up here for you know the first couple summers and people thought I had my degree and I didn't because I was too afraid to go back. I was afraid to go back and fail. I was afraid to go back and face these professors, face my friends on campus who were still there or doing their master's degree and have to tell them why I'm on campus. Oh, I'm on campus because I failed a class and I didn't graduate. You know, I was, I was really afraid to do that. And it hindered me from doing so much. I obviously couldn't apply to grad school because I hadn't finished my degree. I couldn't tell people that I really had a degree. If they assumed, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't challenge that, but I wouldn't openly tell people like, oh yeah, I have a degree because I didn't have it. And it was not until 2013, so three years later that I had enough courage to go back to Florida for a semester and finish the classes and finally get my degree. And part of the reason why I had the confidence to go back was because I had been working here in Falmouth for a couple summers and met people who were encouraging and reminding me that you you are intelligent, like you are better than what they're telling you that you are. You can do it. And I, I just, I had to internalize that. I had to believe that for myself. Mm -hmm. And then I had to be willing to face my fears. Everything, like I said, happened. I had to go back and face those professors. I had to go see my friends on campus who were like, what are you doing here? Or, <laughs> you know, some freshmen who I had mentored, I'm now sitting in a class with and they're like, why are you here? You know, and I had to, I had to let go of that pride and say like, I didn't finish, but I'm finishing now. And now I have my degree and now I have a master's degree and I've been able to move on with my life. But that was a, it was a real struggle to have to, to go back and, and deal with all that to finish. It's such an important thing because when you're in that spin of negativity, it's so hard to know that you need to look elsewhere to help or to think positive messages. And so it's really hard to see it. And it's almost like it's magical that that happened for you. And I think women can, when they're sitting in that spin, have little inklings of, is this really me? And then be able to look, you know, who else can I talk to that's done this, that might support me, that might be able to give me a different view or help me understand what steps I need to take to be able to do this. Right, exactly. And how sad that it took you three years. Like, my gosh, it's so, it's such a great story because it really says to other women, you know, that, that negative message was so big in you that it held you for it three did. years. It did. And it, it was, it was very, it doesn't simple. have to, <laughs> there's, right. there's, there's great tools. I actually shared with a couple of different clients this week uh, about reframing where you can look at those negative messages. And I take people through a process that you come up with a, a positive message to outweigh that negative message. And actually that's one of the things that has been the most life-changing for me was being able to take 
my negative message that I had about myself and flip it into a positive message. And it actually involves a woman who's a scientist in Woods Hole who was asking me, this business major, about what she should do to keep her daughter interested in math in second grade. And this woman like travels all over the country to speak. Oh, She's like world renowned in her field. And I'm like, why is she asking me? <laughs> like what? And that really helped me flip that negative message of I'm not smart enough. Right. Which was really holding me back. Yeah. So um, I love that you brought that up because I think that's really important. And if you're feeling those negative messages about yourself, there's lots of ways that you can change them. Know that they're not right and start working to change them because they're holding you back. <laughs> yes, especially if they're holding you back. I, I know sometimes thinking negatively or like we said, reflecting on what we could have done better, like that, that can be helpful, very small doses. But when that becomes overwhelming or that becomes the main message is when it can be absolutely detrimental. And it actually, it was only recently that I was willing to actually talk about this mm -hmm. because I was embarrassed about it for so long, but I've come to terms with, this is part of my story. This is part of who I am. And if there is one person out there who is going to hear this and think, well, then I'm, I'm going to finish, like, I'm going to go back or I'm, I'm going to plow through, then it's worth, it's worth me sharing. Right. Definitely. Um, I always love to ask about confidence because I, I think that's such a, a building block in success. Mm -hmm. And I, it's one of those elusive things that is really difficult to teach. It's really difficult. I, I wish we could just go buy it in a store. That would be so great. Oh, We'd all work our butts off to get enough money to go buy it because it's so helpful. What do you think you know, I know you said moving around definitely helped your confidence. Anything else that you think really helped you be able to have the confidence to make the choices that you've made? I think a lot of it had to do with my faith, believing that I am, I am here for a reason and I'm here for a purpose and that there, there are great things that I'm meant to do has definitely helped. I think the support of my family, um, my mom, my brother, my sister, my husband, reminding me that I can do well, reminding me of the things that I do do well. And my husband does this on a regular basis and God bless him, I love him so much. <laughs> reminding me, he's like, you know, I, I couldn't do that. It takes a special person to be able to do that. It takes a special skill set to be able to do certain things. So outside reminders have been a big help, but I think also spending time reflecting myself and thinking about not just the things that I've done, but the way that I've made people feel, I think is also important. Sharing the positive energy, sharing the encouragement to others, finding it in others, the things that they may not be seeing about themselves helps build my confidence in knowing that when you're in something, sometimes you can't see the, the outside, you can't see the bigger picture. And the same way when I have a student who I'm like, you don't see it, but I see it in you. I see your greatness. I see your beauty. I see your potential. And then reminding that I'm probably doing the same thing. I'm probably not seeing all of myself because I'm, I'm too in the muds. I'm too in the weeds getting stuff done. And so if I can find that 
in all of my students, in the people that I work with, I know that's in me too. And sometimes I can bring it out of myself, but sometimes I, I need a little bit of help. Nope. So sh sharing it as much as, as feeling it for yourself. That's one of my favorite coaching questions when I'm coaching different people and they're kind of stuck in things. I'll say, you know, if you were coaching your best friend and they were saying this to you, what would you tell them? Ooh, I like that. Right? Because it totally flips it. And then when they hear themselves say it, it hits them right in the heart and they're yeah. like, oh, now yeah. I get it. Right? So just Absolutely. thinking about what would I tell my best friend if they were having this problem? Exactly. Yeah. Put yourself, like you said, put yourself on the outside and look at yourself from, from the outside rather than in the weeds. I like that a lot. Right. We have such an easier time being nice to outside. <laughs> to other yeah, people. we do. Um, we have a much easier time being nice to other people than to ourselves sometimes. Definitely. Um, so if you were to be able to go back and tell your younger self something, some piece of advice, what do you think you'd tell yourself? Oh, man. There's, I could probably pull out a really long list, but I think the most important thing I think I would uh, tell myself is to stay grounded in who you know you are. A lot of the things that were said to me, that were done to me, the microaggressions and whatnot, I could have brushed them off. I could have shrugged them off if I took a moment to recenter myself and remember who I am. As I mentioned before, I came to work full-time and at Mizar, I was at a job where it wasn't, it was a toxic place for lack of a better term, it was a toxic place. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have, I didn't give myself the opportunity to recenter and remember that the way these people are treating me is a reflection of them and not of me. The stereotypes that people have of me is a reflection of them and not of me. I know who I am. I need to be who I am and do the best that I can do in who I am. So I would tell my younger self, recenter more often. That might need to be every day. At the end of the day, it might need to be throughout the day journaling or something, but recenter, remember who you are and the way people treat you and the way people talk to you and the way people do or, or don't respect you. That is a reflection of them and not of yourself. You can only control yourself and what you do. And so just do the best that you can and know that everything outside of you is is beyond you. Mm -hmm. One more question. Yeah. I thought of this while you were talking. Um, if, if you were chatting, because you have a lot of students, I'm sure that some of them have come to you with just, you know, they're not sure where to go. Mm -hmm. They're kind of, you know, looking at their future and they're just unsure of what step to take next. A lot of, again, I bring it up, right? Those really intelligent women that are very, you know, they get to that point where they don't have the plan and it's just, they spin because they're not sure. So if, if someone came to you like that and said, you know, like, how do I figure it out? What advice would you give them? Say first, think about who you are. Think about what, it sounds really cheesy, but think about what makes you happy. What makes you want to get up in the morning? What is going to sustain you in what you're doing? A lot of the students that I work with are 
students of color, people of color in STEM. And STEM, almost all STEM fields are white male dominated or at least white dominated. Mm -hmm. They are challenging. Academia itself has its own challenges. And so when students are looking to go work in a lab or looking to go work with someone who is in these, let's say like a predominantly white institution or one that we know is toxic, I have to say, you have to be ready and know that what you're doing this for is going to sustain you. What you're doing this for is going to motivate you to keep going. And if you don't know what that is yet, that's okay too. Just try different things. I often suggest to my students, if you wanna take a gap year because you really don't know what you wanna do for graduate school, go do something kind of seemingly random. Like there are internships to go do various things. Just go try something different. It's almost as important to know what you don't wanna do as it is to know mm -hmm. what you do wanna do. Is. <laughs> yeah, but back to like going into spaces that you know are gonna be frustrating or hostile if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, so like this is going to be four years of my life, but I'm doing this because I, don't know, I love sharks and I want to study sharks. And this is what I have to do to get there. Just staying centered and saying every day, I'm remembering why I'm doing this. I've got pictures of sharks on my wall. Remember like, this is, this is what I'm going for. This is why I'm here. And being, being your whole self. Which I, I know is much easier said than done, but bringing your whole self and knowing what's going to keep you motivated and keep you going. I, I think that's so fa fabulous because I, I really think that is a piece of the change because every person that you see, it may not be all of them, but I would bet that at least one of them is going to see a different vision Mm -hmm. of whatever stereotype they had before by your the end of your time there yeah and be able to think differently and that's how we slowly eke out change and break down stereotypes one one changing one person's mind or giving not even changing their mind but giving them a different view of things to have in their toolbox is the absolutely. way we break it down absolutely and you don't you don't know what you don't know you don't some, I mean, some stereotypes obviously are just wrong, but sometimes you just don't know. When, when I was in college, I was a resident advisor. I was an RA. And I remember one year, another friend of mine who was another RA had an Asian student in their hall who tried to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And obviously we dealt with the whole situation. And when it came out, the student said, I'm Asian. I'm supposed to be smart. Like everyone thinks I'm supposed to be the smartest person in the class. Everyone thinks I'm supposed to have a handle on everything and I'm struggling and I'm not doing well. And so even that seemingly positive stereotype was negatively impacting this kid to that extent. And for me, that put into perspective that even quote unquote positive stereotypes are incredibly harmful. And I have to admit that it was one that I had thought about. I had thought like, oh yeah, these kids coming from these different Asian countries got to be like the smartest because it's that's easy just, for them. <laughs> it's easy for them. Right. Exactly. And recognizing that that was absolutely wrong. And I have not thought that since, you know, and it should not have been up to that student in that situation, especially to bring that to my attention, but it did take some sort of personal interaction different from what I had seen on TV, different from what I had seen in media to come to that conclusion for myself that, oh yeah, this, this stereotype is, not only is it wrong, but it's harmful. Yeah, I love that. 
Anja, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that we have been connected. It was wonderful to be able to interview you and I look forward to connecting with you more and chatting with you more. Um, but thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and allowing me to share a bit of my story. I hope that whoever listens gets something from it. And I know they will. There's a lot they're going to get from it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for joining. Please spread the word and share what you've learned here with other women. If there's someone you think that needs to be interviewed for Fearless Females Redefining Success in Women's Leadership, please connect me with her. For more information, you can check out my website, www.innerovation.com. You can like Innerovation on Facebook, follow me, Brenda Lone Baker, on Instagram or Twitter, and try to stay in touch. I hope y'all have a great day.